Hi, thanks for joining us online. We're glad that you've chosen to access this message. It's so encouraging to know that God is using the ministry of Portico Community Church to touch the hearts and lives of people all across the world. If you have a story to share or a prayer request, we would love to hear from you at info at porticocanada.ca. To support our ministry, you can donate online by clicking on the Donate button at the top right of your screen. Once again, we're so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this message from God's Word will deeply impact your life. Well, good morning, Portico. Great to have everybody here. Signs of spring. (laughs) Only in Canada can we get excited about changing the time. Oh, it's so good. So delighted to have you here. Those of you that are joining us online, and in fact, welcome Brampton and Milton Espanol. This is an all-campus broadcast today, and so we have a chance to join everybody together as I communicate. So I want you to get your Bibles out, get your notes out, open up the apps. We're in a series called Dare to Be Different, Living Your Life on Purpose, and I'm going to jump into that. We're going to go to chapter 4 in just a few moments. Here's what I, w- I want to make sure everybody's aware of. A couple of high, high-level announcements from my world. Some of you have been wondering what happened to Foods of the World. You've been starving yourself for three months now getting ready for Foods of the World. So just so everybody's on the same page, we're going to move that till October this year, October 27. So you just got six more months of not eating. You're going to be okay, but we'll get you there. We have our anniversary weekend coming up, and there's a few changes that are coming, how we handle our global missions, kingdom builders, and we'll talk to you about that. So Just watch the calendar, October 27, we're going to have you covered there. Uh, The other announcement is our anniversary weekend. It is on the weekend of June. John's the winner, June 7, 8, and 9. I thought I heard somebody calling from online as well, so two of you tied for this one. So that's our weekend. High, high level awareness. People are saying, what should I know about that weekend? Saturday afternoon from 11.30 till 2.30, we're going to do an open house. It's a drop-in All the former senior pastors are going to be on the ground here. Their spouses are here. We've invited the staff to come back, and we want you to drop in. You can mingle. We'll have the building open. You can walk around the building. And more importantly, you can meet some of the people from the other campuses as you're connecting with former senior pastors. And we're just going to hang out and have some fun on Saturday afternoon. Saturday night at 5.30, we're doing a ticketed banquet. It's going to be at the Banquet Center up in Brampton. There'll be more information on that. Tickets will go on sale the 1st of April, and we just want you to be aware that we We will have those tickets available for you. You can purchase those online. But again, that'll be the beginning of April. And then on Sunday morning, this is where it's going to get a little weird. You trust me? That was my wife. Okay. (laughs) This is where it's going to get a little weird. We're going to do two, that's right, two celebration services on Sunday. We're just going to open up the entire facility and make this one mega church experience. We're bringing all the campuses back together. Don't worry about transportation. We've got it all figured out. We're going to have hospitality tent on site here. We're going to make it just a really, really fun time. 8.45 and 11.15. It's going to be like going to the zoo. So just come and join us. Great, great day. And we want you to be a part of that. Spread the word. Make sure you're aware of that. Now, one last thing. See, I'm going to preach eventually. This is just warming me up. One last thing. I sent you an e-blast, and I talked to you about the year of Jubilee, and I said, wouldn't it be fantastic if we could burn our mortgage papers at the time of our anniversary? And I said, if we could just somehow raise $2.6 million and eliminate the mortgage and move into our future, I would love to do that. Well, I'm still waiting for that one person, and I know you're here somewhere to come and talk to me. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. 
We just, our finance committee, because of your generosity and the stewardship of the church, we were able, when we just renewed our mortgage, we paid off over a million dollars on our mortgage, cash against the mortgage. We are now under 1.6 million. That makes it achievable for one of you. So talk to me before you go home because I just want you to feel the blessing and I would love to share that with you. So thank you for your giving, your generosity. It's going to be a great summer. This is fantastic because when that mortgage is out of the way, we're just going no holds barred into our vision and we're just going to continue to believe God for more campuses and more future. Now get your Bibles. Let's get going. We're talking about daring to be different. And today I want to talk about handling your your critics. Who's ever been criticized? Let me see your hands. Yeah, should be a big fan going in the room right now. If you breathe, you've been criticized. If you died, you'll be criticized. Anything you do is going to be criticized. In fact, I would venture to say, some of us have heard words like this, you're doing it all Oh, you're in that group. You're doing it all wrong. You're not good enough. You're not tall enough. You're not smart enough. You're not strong enough. You're not, and you just want to scream, enough, enough. Critics, let us know where all of our shortcomings or perceived shortcomings are. And of all the things that we would love to forget in life, it would be the words of the critics, but have you ever noticed they're the first things that come back? That when you quiet your spirit and you quiet your mind, the words of your critics hang in your minds quicker than most other images you try to recall. In fact, I try to memorize scripture. I'm much better at memorizing the words of my critics than I am the words of scripture. They seem to stick easier than the words of the Bible. Why is that? So often we are criticized and those words, and I would venture to say that almost every one of us in the room, whether we knew it or not, we've been criticized. Maybe somebody teased you for your clothes or your appearance. It might have been a teammate who berated you for your skills or lack of skills or a coach who cut you from the team or a boss who belittled you in front of your coworkers or you've been individualized for your race, your culture, ethnicity. No one, no one likes to be criticized. It's deeply personal, deeply painful, and it leaves huge emotional scars. And the words of our critics are the uninvited guests that dance in the memories of our minds. They're always there. They're hanging in the fringe, and they just appear at the least expected moments. And criticism never travels alone. Have you ever noticed this? It always is accompanied by its ally, rejection. Because when the words of the critics come in, we start to believe the lie, and we feel rejection start to move into our heart. And if we're not careful, criticism can actually derail our intention to live our life on purpose because we're either worried or we're struggling with words that somebody has spoken to us and it penetrated so deep. The difficulty with criticism is that the critics appear to be holding all the information. They seem to have all of the facts and it seems to be true. They call it a critique, but it's not. Because really what a critique does is it assesses plans and structures and systems and timing and operations and strategies and presentations and procedures. Critics, however, when they throw their words out, create confusion and doubt and uncertainty. They disrupt your plan. They destabilize your vision. And the things that you believed you could do, you find yourself seriously immobilized because somebody spoke something into your life and you're still holding that. So how do we handle this? And what do we do with our critics? Nehemiah is a man who faced more than his fair share of criticism, and it would have been easy for him just to pack up the bags and leave Jerusalem and go right back to home. Persia was a great place. Food was good. Friends were good. Job was good. Everything was there. 
Why stay and build a wall when nobody else wanted it built and everybody was criticizing for his leadership? But here's the deal. You can be involved in a good activity and never be criticized, but you can be involved in a great activity, God's activity, and when you do that, you will be criticized. And what we need to understand today is the question is really not if I will be criticized, it's when you will be criticized, because we will. We will all be criticized. You'll be criticized if you want to live a morally pure and a righteous life. People are going to call you out for that. You're going to be criticized if you want to build a godly marriage and raise a godly family and live according to biblical principles. People will criticize you for that. You're going to be criticized if you want to lead an ethically pure, upright, life filled with integrity and conviction at your workplace. And if you're attending school and you want to dare to be different, you're in elementary or secondary school, the peer pressure is unbelievable, way beyond anything we ever experienced. And when you refuse to tease and bully and marginalize and intimidate or reject other students based upon their gender, their identity, their appearance, their clothing, you're going to be criticized. And you're going to face incredible pressure. But here's what we know. We can either choose marginal lives that accomplish marginal ends, or we can choose to live great lives, and we can pursue God's ends. And as soon as we choose that, we dare to be different. And when we dare to be different, we're going to be criticized for it. And Nehemiah knew this better than most. So let's go into chapter 4, and let me show you a few things before we leave today. How do we handle our critic? Well, let's look at this. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, this is his opposition, he became very angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, and he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Now watch this. One of his allies uh, jumps in, Sanballat's ally, Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, and he said, What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it would break it down, their wall of stones. And Nehemiah prays, Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. There is so much here to unpack for us today because we're all going to face criticism and it's going to come in different waves and different styles. So here's what I want to give you in your notes, three types of criticism and how you need to handle it. It's not enough just to know what it is. You've got to know how to respond to it if we're going to actually grow through criticism. Number one, in your notes, write it down. Criticism, the first one I see is criticism that is expressed through insult. It is the oldest playbook in history public humiliation. If I can ridicule you in public, then I can maybe break down the vision. If I can call you out for believing that you're going to live as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you have convictions and ideals and morals that are different than everybody else's living, then I think my insults are going to destabilize you. And that's the work of the enemy. And that's the goal of the enemy. Sanballat understood something. You see, we've heard it said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. He goes, it may not hurt you, but it'll certainly stop your vision. It can destabilize and undermine everything that you wanted to do. And so he was so confident that his callous insults would penetrate Nehemiah's spirit that it would stop the vision. I want you to see this. Look in your Bible. Nehemiah chapter 4. Look at the words in verse 2. It says, Sanballat, when he heard they were rebuilding the wall, he ridiculed the Jews. So his first strategy is to level criticism at his opposition, particularly Nehemiah, and the word ridiculed in here, this wasn't a critique. This was an outright sabotage 
of everything that Nehemiah wanted to do. Nehemiah had rallied troops of people together. He had his volunteers together. He had a passion infused into these leaders, and they were ready to go. They'd already surveyed the walls, and they'd already strategized about the plan, and everybody was on board. And at that moment, this is where Sanballat and his team come in, and they start to throw these insults out. That's what happens to us, isn't it? We start throwing our vision out and we start living for a grander purpose and we begin to believe that God's doing something great. God's doing something great in my job or in my business or in my career or in my future and in my education. And we intend that we're going to live for God. And in that moment, that's when the enemy comes in and they start to throw all of those doubts and cast dispersions into our world. Look what Sanbella did. I want you to notice this. And if you're writing notes, take this down and talk about it with your growth group this week. When he said they ridiculed him, I pulled four statements right out of the scripture. He said this, what are those feeble Jews doing? He criticized their character. He just throws a slur out. It's so easy to do it, isn't it? Call out race, ethnicity, culture. So he criticizes their character in front of all of his peers. Then he said this, will they restore their wall? So he criticized their competency. Do they even have capacity to do this? Will they offer sacrifices, criticizes their calling? And then he said this, will they finish in a day? He says, you don't even have the commitment. See, insults are powerful. People go after your character. They go after your commitment. They go after your competency. They go after your calling. They'll make you doubt that you have the ability to fulfill what God has birthed in your heart, that you can live a solitary life fully devoted to Christ, that you can raise a family that is fully committed to Christ and his kingdom, that you can lead a business that's grander than the money that it makes, but it serves back into God's kingdom purposes on earth. And the critics will bring the insults to try to bring your dream down. You know the thing about insults? We take them so personal. They, they tag us so hard. In fact, when we're under the barrage or the assault of criticism, I think for a lot of us, when we're feeling the overt pressure externally and it's on us, I don't know what you like to do, But there are days that I just want to go home, jump into bed, and pull the covers up over my head. And then when I peer out to hope that it was just a dream. And unfortunately, when I do that, it's a living nightmare. It's still there. That's what insults and critics do to us. They try to destabilize us, demoralize us. So how do you respond when you're under the assault of insults? Three blank lines in your notes. Real quickly, I want you to fill them in. First blank line, consider the source. When you are facing insults, you need to consider the source. How many of you had parents that said that to you? You're being bullied. Your friends, boyfriend, girlfriend, school friends, they were just giving you a hard time, and you go home and you're crying, Mom, Dad, oh, you're just heartbroken. And they go, Hey, consider the source. What were they reminding you of? That person is probably wounded in their own right. There's something that went wrong in their own world, and they're bullying out of insecurity, not out of superiority. It's just false bravado that people use to try to make themselves feel superior to us. But there's their own levels of uncertainty. When you consider the source, you realize that embarrassment will cause them to do things and create hurt in our lives, and they use insults as one of their weapons. Interesting, when you consider the source, it was Jesus that would speak to Peter these poignant words. Mark chapter 8, 33, Jesus reprimanded Peter. This is the moment when Peter said, no, Lord, you're not going to suffer. You're not going to die. I'm going to fight to the end for you. And Jesus reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's point of view. Often the words of our critics are not sourced in their own lives. 
The Bible says that there is an enemy, an arch enemy of God. There's an enemy that seeks to destroy and kill and devour. There's an enemy, and we're not unaware of his tactics, Paul says. And he will use people and the words of people in order to get at us so that if he can destabilize us, he can take the vision away. Don't give him that room. So consider the source. Second blank line, write this down. Don't take it personally. When you're being insulted, don't take it personally. Look at how Nehemiah responds. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 4, we read these words. Nehemiah praying, he says, Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Now, if you're used to highlighting or circling words or underlining in your Bible, two words. I want you to underline or circle the word us and the word we. Again, I, I spoke on this earlier. Nehemiah never speaks about himself. He doesn't say, Hear me, O God, for I am despised. He says, Hear us. He always puts himself into the story with others. He refused to take it personally. See, think about insults and criticism. We always feel like we're the only one. We're being targeted. And I learned something from this man's journals. This man teaches me that when I'm under assault and I'm under insult, that I need to stop for a moment and look at the broader picture and say, if I'm really about a greater vision, a grander vision, it's all for God and my life is truly given over to God, then it's really not being leveled against me. It's being leveled against God. And so he doesn't take it personally, and he prays to God, and he doesn't separate himself from the rest of his community. Here is a very, very important principle to get. Never, 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 never engage in a verbal warfare with your critics. It's a no-win situation. You're going to waste precious emotional, intellectual, and physical resource. You know this, right? That when somebody begins to insult you, if you start to dial up and you start to insult them back, there's no winning here. In fact, I just jotted it down this way. I started to think through this. When you engage with them, you lose. You can't recover the words that you spoke. When you try to absorb that and own that, you lose. You live with the pain and the thought that's there. When you take those words home and you dump it on your spouse and your family and your friends, we do, don't we? You lose. Because they now take the brunt of that. And we tend to obscure any element of truth that was in those words because we're going to position it and make sure that we look okay in this. But when we pray, we win. When we trust God, we win. Proverbs ten nineteen it says this, Too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. That's a great verse, isn't it? That should be our memory verse for the week. Stop talking because we just get ourselves in trouble. So we have to learn how in those moments to not take it personally. Third blank I want you to fill in is to respond appropriately. Respond appropriately. Again, back to verse 4, where Nehemiah said this. He said, hear us, O God. I love that. That's just a prayer. That's just a heart prayer. He doesn't allow his enemy to become the center of his distraction. And I got thinking about this. What would it be like if the next time that we're insulted or we're under attack or we're being criticized, that the first thing that we did was prayed? Because that's not our first response, is it? We, we tend to move into different areas of our lives, but we don't often pray first. Well, no, actually, we do, some of us do, but we hope that nobody can read minds. Because when we pray, it's like, oh God. You know that guttural prayer? And it's just loaded with seething. And you go, oh, I should never pray like that. Or should you? Huh, maybe you should. You see, look what it says in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 4. Stay with me. Don't check out and say, that's all I needed. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 4. Look at Nehemiah's prayer. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their heads. Oh, I like that. It's getting better now. Watch this. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Who can pray this prayer? 
Isn't this good? Keep going. Do not cover up their guilt. Do not blot out their sin. But he doesn't talk about it from his perspective. He says, God, from your sight. God invites us to pray authentically in the midst of our pain and our hurt. God is not looking for you to clean up your prayer. Isn't this freeing? That God doesn't expect you to sanitize your prayer before you pray to him? How many of you are honest enough to say, some of the prayers that I've prayed, I wondered if God was actually listening or judging? Oh, I'm the only guy with a hand up. Okay. <laughs> I have. There, there's been prayers that I've prayed where I go, I hope, God, you can handle this honesty right now because I'm just really frustrated on how this is falling into place in my life. And Nehemiah frees us up to understand something. When we look at the insults, we can respond appropriately. Too many of us, the way we want to respond is we want to respond to our critic and dump our, our energy and all of our frustration on them. And Nehemiah turns it to God and he goes, I know that God can handle this, so I'm going to pray. And he just vents and he lets it go. And it's a powerful expression. James chapter 119, dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And this is how Nehemiah responded. Well, if insults don't get you, and that's the first round of criticism, there's a second type that I see in this chapter. Write this down criticism that escalates to the point of intimidation. If your critic can't embarrass you and cause the insults to slow you down, they're going to dial up the bravado, they're going to employ a new set of tactics, and they're going to come at you with verbal, emotional, physical, and even potentially violence to try to stop you. So here's what we read in verse 7 of chapter 4. It says, When Sinbelet, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to stir up trouble against it. Now notice what takes place. So in fact, let's go to the screens. I want to show you a picture. Last week I shared with you a picture of the outline of the city of Jerusalem. This is about 445 B.C. at the time of Nehemiah. And these are the the walls that he's going to rebuild. So you read verse 7 and 8 and you go, okay. So they're all ticked off because he's going to rebuild the walls and fortify the city. But here's what I want you to notice about these two verses that we often miss. Let's go to the next slide. Look where the names are. Up to the north, top of the screen, Samaria. That's Sambalat. He's the governor. He's got the most to lose. He goes, there's no way I'm letting this city get rebuilt. Then we hear the Ashdod, the Ashdodites. They're over to the left side. They're on the west. They occupy that territory. Over to the right is the Ammonites. They're over in the east. Down to the south is the Arab communities. Jerusalem is fully surrounded by the enemies that are now taunting them and saying, you want to go ahead with this? Then we're going to bring all the forces of our military might and we are going to press in and we are going to shut this thing down. And some of you understand this. You have people that bully you and push you and taunt you. And when the words don't work, then they start to bring other forces into play and they look for ways to sap the vision that you have. So how do you respond in this? Well, before we go, let me show you one more thing. Look in your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 12. So you've got four bands of people pressing in around Jerusalem. In verse 12, we read this. Then the Jews who lived near these groups of people, they came and told us ten times over, Whenever, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Now, whoa, 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 whoa. You're now Nehemiah. You with me? 
No, you're not. Interactive church. You're now Nehemiah. You with me? Okay, you're the leader. You now have to care for the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. You've already rallied your people and you go, we're going to do this. God is on our side. And they come at you and they go, we're in the north and we're in the south and we're in the east and we're in the west. We've got you surrounded. And you go, that's okay. We're still going to build. But then the Jews that are living out in the peripheral parts because they'd all been repopulated and mixed amongst the people during the exile time, they're living out there. They come back to the city and they find you as the leader and they go, hey, uh, by the way, wherever you turn, they're going to attack you. And you go, well, thanks for that news. Oh, hey, by the way, wherever you turn, they're going to attack you. Wherever you turn, they're going to attack you. Ten times. Nehemiah is probably shouting, stop it. It's bad enough when your enemies are already in your face, but when the, mor- mor- uh, the morale of your own people is already dissipating, and we've seen this, isn't it? When people start to lose morale and they start to question the vision and they want to bail because they go, we can't overcome this. And Nehemiah gives me such hope here because I understand that when it escalates to the point of intimidation, there's a way to respond to this kind of criticism. Write in the blank in your notes, write these words, avoid quick emotional reactions. You need to avoid quick emotional reactions. Don't let the impulsive action in your nature take over in this moment. I am speaking about a learned behavior. Now, if you look at me, what do you see? You see a six foot two dose of Scottish mixed with a little blend of Irish and topped off with a little red hair. I was not what you would call your typical flight person when conflict came. I was your fight person when it came to conflict. So I could take it for a while, and then after a while it was like, who cares? Let's do this. And so my nature was more prone to lean in. You see, that's what they talk about, clinical responses, fight or flight rather than faith. And we've learned that faith is always the best way. So where are you? Because you're one of them. Are you fight or are you flight? And so you look at what happens here, and I look at Nehemiah, and I go, he didn't do either of those. So when it came time for him, I looked at his response. Proverbs twenty four twenty nine says, and don't say, now I can pay them back for what they've done to me. I'll get even with them. That wasn't Nehemiah. So Nehemiah's response is found in verse 9. Here it is. But we prayed. Here it is again. He prayed. We prayed to our God and we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Prayer was his immediate go-to. Whether it was insults or intimidation, prayer was his go-to. If you, did, if you wrote nothing else down today, do me a favor. Write this down. Prayer tempers our emotions and targets our response. Own that one. Prayer will temper your emotion and it will target your response. What do you mean by that, Doug? When you pray, you're letting God do his part. And in prayer, you can then target the appropriate response He prayed to God and he posted guards. He let God do his part and then Nehemiah did his part. You following me? Okay. You know what we want to do? We want to do God's part and we want God to do our part. We want to be the ones to take care of our enemies and then we say, God, why don't you stand guard and watch while I go out and thrash my enemies? And God says, hey, how about we reverse this? Because the moment we move into that... And we don't temper our response. We get ourselves into trouble. 
And then it causes havoc for the vision that God has given to us. And if you want to dare to be different and live your life on purpose, you have to learn how to do this, that your immediate response needs to be prayer. Because there are going to be moments where people are going to come at you with full-on threats, and you need to back off and just go, God, God, let me just call out to you first. And I don't want to respond in the inappropriate way, and I don't want this to be an emotional response. And so Nehemiah teaches me something. Here's the second thing I learned from Nehemiah. Write this in the other blank. You need to choose to be a peacemaker. You need to de-escalate what everybody else is trying to accelerate. You need to find a way to release the emotions and bring it down. There are ways to solve these problems, but you've got to get the emotions out of it. In fact, the Bible talks to us very poignantly about peacemaking. Romans 12, 14, it says, Bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse. That's so hard, isn't it? It's so hard. Because when somebody insults us and somebody hurts us and somebody ticks us off, that's not my first thought. I don't say, Lord, bless them today. (laughs) They're just such good people. I'm a little James and John. Can we call down fire? Aren't you glad God doesn't answer all of our prayers? There'd be a lot of people missing from this area if we all prayed like James and John. And so the Bible says just... Blessed are our peacemakers. What did Jesus say? Because peacemakers will be called children of God. And I don't know about you, but I think that's the best calling and vision I could have in my life. If I wanted to dare to be different, I think to be a child of God is probably the best calling I could have. James said, peacemakers who sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. And Paul told us, he said, friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of our God. Peacemaking always walks us through the door and de-escalates what people are trying to intimidate. All right, number three, write this down. There's another form of criticism that's it's rather unusual. And I read this text a couple of times and I went, I never thought of this. And so I just want to put it out there for you to think about today. And it's criticism that's experienced through isolation. See, if your critics can't let their words hurt you and they can't intimidate you with violence... I think there's nothing more destructive to the human soul and human nature than to cause people to live in isolation from others. And if they can isolate us and they make us feel like I'm the only person. So imagine at the time you're building the wall and Nehemiah deploys us and he said, all right, everybody to your stations. And the enemy goes, good luck with that because that's a big job. In fact, here's what I want. Just go to Nehemiah 4.19 and I'm going to explain a couple of things for you. In verse 19, we read this, Nehemiah said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we're widely separated from each other along the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there, and our God is going to fight for us. So there's a strategy here that Nehemiah employs, which is, if an attack is coming from a particular area, then I want you to come and join us in battling the attack. But I backed up in the verses, and I looked at this, and Nehemiah called it out. He said, you know, we're widely separated, and there's a lot of work to do. And separated to me is when there's gaps between us, there's opportunity for the enemy to infuse isolation into our sense of purpose. I'm the only one. You ever thought those words? Nobody else cares. I'm the only one. I'm doing this all by myself. I'm the only one who chooses to serve. I'm the only one who's choosing to lead. And isolation begins to taunt us, and the enemy knows it's a tactic, and if he can keep us separated, it's much easier to defeat if we're living in isolation from each other. So I started to look at the background of the text. And I was curious, you know the picture I showed you on the wall of Jerusalem, 445 BC? 
So historians estimate that the circumference of the city, that wall was somewhere between four to six kilometers in circumference. The width of the wall was anywhere from eight and a half meters up to at points uh, 15 meters wide. And the height was from eight and a half up to 14 meters high. Uh, That's massive. So when he said they worked at it and they built the wall to half the height, I'm going, okay, put that back. For some of you, I lost you because we're not in foot and miles and pounds. So if you're two and a half miles around and you're an eight and a half foot wide up to 23 foot wide wall and from 23 up to 40 feet high, if you're halfway there and you're going, wow, and you're working on that wall. So let's take a few more statistics. You tracking so far? So big job, yes? Massive job. So I looked back and I said, well, how many people lived in Jerusalem at the time? Because the exile, the disbursement. How many people? So in the city proper, the best estimates from the Jewish historian Josephus and those that have records, somewhere between four to 500 people lived in the city. So you have four to 500 people to work on a two, two and a half mile circumference, four kilometer wall. So I started running those numbers. And what I realized is that means that if a worker was stationed to my left, there would be a gap of somewhere around 26 to 27 feet before the next worker. So if we put somebody on this part of the stage, and if online if you're catching that, and we put somebody on this side of the stage, this is wide open territory and you're working, and the closest person to rescue you is one person and they're over there, and one person is over there, and the entire group spread all the way around the city. Here's what we also know from Scripture, that under the threat of attack, Nehemiah said, I posted guards. And if you read the story, he said, I want one of you to stand guard while one of you works. You take 400 or 500 people, you reduce them down to 250 people, you increase the gap, you increase the isolation. They're now 50, 60, 70 feet apart. So you realize the vulnerability and the risk and the enemy was living in their glory because they're going, as long as they feel isolated, they feel vulnerable. And when they feel vulnerable, they don't work well because they're working with rubbish. They're afraid for the security of their family. They were doing everything possible to intimidate them. And sometimes I believe that isolation is probably one of the enemy's most effective tools. In fact, when it comes to living our lives and serving Christ and being faithful to what Christ has called us, isn't it isolation that usually pulls us away from community? Nobody knows about me. I don't feel needed. I don't feel known. I don't feel loved. And the enemy throws words in and he says, they don't know who you are. What you're doing doesn't make any difference. And those words start as insults, but suddenly they start to isolate you and you begin to buy into the lie that if I never showed up, nobody would ever care, that I'm not that important to the community. And God says, no, I'll leave the 99 to find the one. See, that's the kind of God we serve. You're so valuable. God says, there is no tactic that the enemy can use, but you can believe a lie. So don't buy into that lie of isolation. So what do you do in those moments, and how do you resist that? Real quickly, a couple of blanks. Uh, So what do you do when you're living in this isolation moment? First off, think twice before criticizing others. The very tactics that the enemy uses on us should never be the tactics that we use on others that we should speak words of blessing and life and health and future. We should make declarations that look for the best in others. Romans 12, 21, it says, don't let evil get the best of you, get the best of evil by doing good. 
that we should be, of all people, the ones to believe and build others up. We should find people and say, you dare to be different. You live your life on purpose. I believe in you. How can I serve into that? Don't let people live in isolation. Find a way to partner with them. The second blank, write these words down. Choose to become a better person. That isolation can actually begin to cripple our mental response to our state of mind, and we start to believe lies. And I watch people move from better to bitter in that moment because they start to buy that lie, and they really do believe that nobody cares and that nobody loves them, and they forget that God actually loves them greater than all of us combined together, and then he calls us into community together. That's how much God loves you. Erwin McManus said this, don't let an arrow of criticism pierce your heart unless it has passed through the filter of Scripture. Don't buy the lie that has not yet gone through the filter of the Scripture, because the Scripture will often reduce that down to what it was. It was just a lie. And the third thing I want you to write down is to develop a greater dependency upon God. Romans 12, 12 says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. If I've learned nothing else today with you, we have learned this, that Nehemiah prayed first, no matter what the criticism, that prayer was his first response. If we're going to be first responders, Let's be prayer warriors because that takes us through the attack. So when you live your life on purpose, it's not a question of if you'll be criticized, but when, and you will. And it might be through insults, might be through intimidation, and maybe it's coming through isolation. But can I challenge you? It's worth the grander vision. It's worth pursuing what God has called you to. Refuse to settle for a life that is merely defined by good activity. Choose to aspire for a life that is defined by God's activity. It's always the best way. Thanks for watching today. Be sure to check out our other messages on this page, and you can also watch us live online every Sunday morning at 1010 a.m. Don't forget, share your story or send us a prayer request by emailing info at porticocanada.ca. You can also stay connected by liking our Facebook page or following us on Twitter at PorticoCC. 